hello and welcome to the one big podcast i am one of your co-host fellow her jason with a cold which is why i sound like a bad tom waits impression i'm here with my other co-host derek fellow her derek say hello hey everybody hey jason and today we have a special guest um his name is kevin and he has written a book called we have fed you all for a thousand years which may sound familiar to a bunch of musicians like me. Um, it's all about um, organizing the restaurant industry. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, specifically in New York City, uh, where I currently live and work and organize. Awesome. awesome. So today we're going to just talk about that. Um, I know Derek has read the book and he's got, he wants to discuss some stuff about it. Derek, go ahead. Yeah. So Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, what you do in the union and, and why you care about, you know, this work? Yeah, so um, my name is Kevin. I live in New York City. Um, I joined the IWW in, um, I always tell people five years, but I actually looked at my red card and it's eight years ago. So I've been a wobbly for about eight years. What I do you remember- get? What, what what do we get in our 10 year anniversary? <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. I remember emailing the the New York branch and being like, hey, I work in a shitty bakery and I want to join the IWW and, and unionize my workplace and make it better. Um, and they were like, you know, we're, we're like super busy, but just come out to like a meeting. And, and so I did, but it was after work. So I was late. I came at the like last five minutes and they were like, okay, well, we're just going to get some drinks if you want to come. So I went and got, you know, drinks with met everyone, got my red card. Um, someone was like, hey, we have campaigns in bakeries in New York, like it's happening now, like if you're interested. And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, I'll, and then I was like, I didn't follow up with them for a while. Um, I didn't even really know like what organizing your workplace was like, what I didn't know what being assault was, but then I ended up, the place I was working closed. I I contacted the, the guy who was Daniel, the former executive director of Brand Workers, um, got in touch with some Brand Workers organizers, ended up assaulting at Amy's Bread, um, which is a wholesale bakery in Queens, New York. Um, and that was kind of like my intro to organizing. I hadn't like done an OT 101 before that, or like even really like been involved in any other IWW stuff before that. So it was kind of like a crash course, um, but super cool experience. Wasn't super good at it as a monolingual worker um, in a mostly Spanish speaking workplace. But then after a few years left that place, um, but still been involved in the IWW since then. Still organizing? Yes, but gotcha, (laughs) gotcha. Uh, So, so you wrote this book. We have fed you all a thousand years. It seems like it's kind of near and dear to your heart and your kind of workplace experience in a lot of ways. Like, what, what, why'd you write it? I didn't actually set out to write a book, and and definitely not like this book. But so, as I mentioned, I'm a. I don't know if I mentioned it actually. Uh, I'm a baker, and I've worked in a bunch of bakeries in New York. and like kind of randomly, I just kept stumbling on on like little pieces of history about about like Baker, like kind of like revolutionary, like cool things about bakers throughout history. 
like during the Paris Commune, they had abolished night work for bakers. And then like I was reading a lot about the, there were like bread riots in Egypt in uh, 1977, I think, about like rising pr bread prices. Um, there was like a lot of other little stuff. I was like, and I was like, oh, I want to make a zine like about like Baker, like unrest and like stuff like that. Um, well, you know, I'm always on this podcast talking about the bread and roses of organizing, you know, Derek's the bread on the roses. You're literally the bread. <laughs> but then, um, so yeah, I started like re trying to like search more and more. I came across, there's a book called, I think battling for American labor by Howard Kimmeldorf that had a lot of, a lot of the stuff about like the amalgamated food workers chapter. He had a lot of stuff about the amalgamated in his book. Um, and that kind of opened my eyes to like New York. So the amalgamated was like bakers and restaurant workers. Um, so that exposed me to like a lot of the New York stuff that I didn't know about before. And then I mentioned it to someone, another fellow worker and they were like, we have like an archive of all their, all the amalgamated like uh, newspapers. And he like sent me this huge Google doc and I started reading it and I was like, and I, so I had started this little Google doc of all, of all the New York stuff. I was like, I was like taking notes on and then it just started growing and growing and it was like 20 pages. And I was like, Oh man, this is so long. <laughs> and then, uh, I just kept adding and adding to it. And then, then it became like, you know, 200 pages, which is why, you know, embarrassingly, there's like not no footnotes and no like work cited, which is like kind of, I guess, amateur, but I, I'm okay with it. I mean, we write our own history, I guess. Right. Yeah. So that's sort of how it like snowballed into a, a book from a, a little zine idea. I've I've definitely had projects like that where you're like, I got a little idea. Ah, shit. <laughs> now yeah. it's a big thing. I'm currently in one of those projects where I was like, I got a little idea. And now I'm like looking at a $10,000 project that I'm like, I don't think I can afford this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like a year later and I'm like, I need to, I need to end this. <laughs> God, this yeah. has to end. Like, yeah. Sometimes you just got to put a due date on something where you're like, I will work on this forever it's got to be done by this point whatever state it's in it's done it's in the world i'm yeah. over it my thing was like that i was tabling at the anarchist book fair uh last september and i had done it the year before and just had like some of the zines i did and i was like i literally have only the same things because i haven't finished this book yet i need to i need <laughs> to have it printed by september and i did which is kind of a miracle um, oh it's great i mean you set your own and you hit it i mean that's that's got to be worth something. And shout out to Radix Media, the worker-owned print shop in in Brooklyn that uh, didn't charge me extra for a bit of an expedited project. Oh, I'm gonna have to write that down. I was gonna actually suggest that, Jason. I'm so this is gonna be a side note. I'm working on a magazine um, that's like propaganda art that you can rip out and then photocopy and paste around. You know, and I've been commissioning artists and like that kind of thing. And I went to a printer and they were like, yeah, it's four grand to print this. And I was like, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> so I might have to look them up because I would like to work with the union or work around business. So. so so, Kevin, you start this book going back to uh, the International Hotel Workers Union back in 1912. 
you know, a, a lot has changed in the restaurant industry, or maybe it hasn't actually. I've never actually worked in service person. I mean, I've worked in service. It's a big, it's a big industry. I've never worked in restaurants or hotels in particular. So I guess like one of my first question is like, has it actually changed a lot or 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 does enough remain the same from that time period that you know someone coming from that period to now might actually find themselves at home pretty easily i mean it's definitely remained the same in that the the boss has the say he can fire you at will um workers have no power without you know each other and their solidarity and whatnot I'd say in general, it's, it's, things are, are better now. You know, we have a weekend, I guess that's something to be thankful for. It was funny at the, at the book fair, one of the first people to open the book flipped right to this cartoon from, I think it was 1920 from the Amalgamated Food Workers paper. Um, And it's just like these four, uh, it's like a chambermaid, a bellhop, a cook and a waiter, like standing in front of empty plates and the caption is like like stew and hash like this food we serve to the guests isn't is like too good to serve to the staff and it, and there's a there's a lot in the book about like the food that they serve to the to the workers in the hotels which is just like rotten meat and like everything that needs to be thrown out is like like made into a giant soup or a, or a hash and it was funny because he was like Oh shit! I worked at Eleven Madison Park, which is like this, like super super expensive like restaurant in New York. And he was like, "This is what they would serve us," and uh, and it's like you know a hundred years later, the same exact, not even like, it's like exactly the same thing is happening in in like so it's like little things like that. It's kind of crazy that they're they're the exact same, but yeah, you know, we have the weekend and. <laughs> they're still feeding us garbage but we got a couple hours to got, ourselves i i the mentality of hey at least we got i hate the it could be worse mentality that a lot of people i know have where it's like yeah but it could also be infinitely better all right yeah infinitely <laughs> I could, better i could not be eating trash because uh, i remember <laughs> i read what's that george orwell book uh, down and out in london and paris um I don't know if you've ever read anybody's ever read that. Nope. It's all about that. He like works in a hotel in Paris and like just the description of it. I'm like, is he in prison? Like, <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. And there's a lot of other stuff that um like one thing that's that happens throughout the book is like when workers go on strike, they're replaced by either like so these hotel owners have like different um they own hotels like in the south. And so they'll like uh, they'll like bus in all these like black workers from the south to act as strike breakers or they'll get the women working in smaller cafeterias to act as strike breakers so it's like they're creating these like racial and gender divisions that like you still see like in restaurants today um, like almost any restaurant in New York like the the line cooks are from from central america south america the the service the baristas are are like women the pastry chefs are women the overnight people are like african immigrants or you know it's like the the, the staff is still 
the the man, management still keeps the staff divided in that way. Yeah, and that's something yeah. that hasn't really changed. Yeah, it's one and of those can, things. And where you it's can like, use those divisions. Well, the yeah. boss can. It's one of those things where, like, you know, just because the law has changed doesn't mean the culture has changed. And the culture is something that's like much harder to do. You can't just like write down that we no longer do this. You know. Uh, right, you know, the, changing the boss's mind is going to be much harder than a law. Well, it's also like thinking about like the stew and hash thing. I mean, tradition is really handed down by people over long periods of time, right? I mean, it's passed person to person, um, generation to generation, and so it, it's it's not surprising to me that some of these that that there are still a lot of these traditions that hold that that find their way into these spaces even into even in in like 2023 i had to look at the calendar to make sure okay. i didn't say 2022 but yes 2023 because there's something pervasive about culture that isn't just it's like when you have workers who want to negotiate a contract and one of the things that i talk to them about when i talk to workers who want to negotiate a contract like there's also often a question of like, well, what are you trying to, what are you trying to do here? And sometimes you get somebody who says like, well, I really think that the way they behave towards us on X, Y, and Z issue needs to be fixed. And, and it's always, and, and, and I have to kind of look at him and, and kind of say like, you know, that's a matter of culture. Like you can only mandate that so much in a contract. A lot of this stuff you're going to continue struggling against and cultural change is going to take a lot more than just simply putting it in a contract that you can't treat us this way anymore right it's going to take dignity takes a little bit more work than that yeah for sure so there are a lot of there are a lot of things in in this book and one of the things that i'm always interested in whenever i read or look at like the history of labor is just like the sheer militant nature of it right and there's lots of accounts in this book of of back and forth bricks being thrown through uh being thrown through windows of 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 workers getting together and and fighting people to, like like creating literal picket lines where you know you don't want to cross that picket line because you don't know what's going to happen to you right and and i find that i find that that's one of those things that i don't see a lot of in the u.s in particular in 2023 that when i look back to like 1912 and the 1920s there was a certain willingness of workers to to defend themselves in all sorts of ways. Whereas like today, I can't imagine, like, actually I can't imagine it. So let me rephrase that. Today, I think it'd be a lot different than seeing like the UAW on strike, for example, right? The, 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 the Fords are not sending their, their company spies into beat up the president of the UAW anymore. Like it just doesn't, like it's not what's happening. Um, the, the board of directors of Kellogg did not send strike breakers in to go beat up, beat up picketers as part of the Kellogg strike. So, but but despite that, despite the fact that nobody's like most people are not at risk of losing their lives in 2023, people are still too scared to organize. And I, I contrast that to like 1912 and that era where people were literally dying. And it surprises me sometimes, like what was happening with people in that period that made them willing to do a hell of a lot more than sign a petition, actually like get up, walk a picket line, 
and beat the shit out of a scab. Like what, what was, what was different? Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to, to pinpoint and, and uh, I guess for what it's worth, union leadership and from what I was reading, it was like, don't fight the cops. Don't throw these bricks. But it, I mean, it was the workers who were just not listening to their advice and doing it anyways. Um, <laughs> even like, you know, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn or Carlo Tresca, these like militant wobblies are like, eh, don't, don't like, don't battle the police, but they were doing it anyways. I mean, Carlo Tresca was, was definitely battling the police too. So, but yeah, I think it's kind of hard to pinpoint like, like one simple answer to that. Um, I think part of it could have a lot to do with, with like how like totally dehumanized they were at work. And I mean, I guess you see this, this isn't, couldn't be that much different than being a worker at an Amazon factory today, but like Oscar, the Waldorf or Oscar Chirky, I think his name was the maitre d' at the Waldorf, who everyone just called Oscar the Waldorf was like this infamously massive asshole that just ran the place like a boot camp and like was like totally he uh he would like refer to waiters as he gave them all numbers and would refer to them that, by, yeah. by number instead of name despite the fact that it, that in his biography it said that he had every millionaire in new york's name memorized um not those poor workers yeah but he would like you know uh once a week at the end of the shift all the waiters would have to line up and he would read from this, these booklets that the the head waiters had written down every little infraction they had they had like done throughout the week. You know, like you dropped a fork, and, and he would find them. Yeah, you would get a fine, and then he would read it all in front of everyone, like totally humiliating. I can't imagine working like that under constant surveillance. That like you could get fined for smiling or you know looking too cold. Like just the surveillance and like how dehumanizing that must have been, I think could have made workers pretty desperate to to change their situation. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if that there's got to be more to it than that, but I think that certainly had something to do with it. And the fact that like, I mean, in 1912, I don't remember the numbers in the book, but there's like, I mean, Eugene Debs like ran for president and got like a pretty significant number of votes and like i think maybe they were being told like workers was like expecting you know their lives to get better as like all these socialist politicians were getting into office when really they weren't and that they maybe saw no other way out than than fighting yeah um not to talk about another book while we're talking about your book but um the book that just came, i think it just came out uh how to blow up a pipeline i forget the name of the author kind of talks about this, how like, you know, especially the environmental movement recently has been like hampered by nonviolence and like our complete unwillingness to cross this line because we've been told that violence is inherently bad. And it's like, I don't know, man, sometimes you you got to speak the language of the state and say the language is fucking violence. Like that's all it is. How to so. blow up a pipeline, learning to fight in a world on fire by Andreas Malm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've been, thinking a lot about that lately you know like every peaceful protest needs that radical flank that's willing to be like no we'll beat you up if you don't <laughs> do what we say yeah 
Yeah. Like we're walking out and if you're not, we're dragging you out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, there's also something in, I, you know, I'm never sure how much to like overstate it. Like if it's overstated or if I'm just imagining it, but I feel like this was also an era of, of consistent messaging. I mean, the IWW was out in public all over the place doing things. We like, we were in news stories, people like we were on people's lips. We were actively educating the public, the communists, you know, communist party was out there. The socialists were out there. Like it was a time where, where there was, where radical organizing feels like it was more public than it is that than it feels like even now in some ways and um like the IWW doesn't feel particularly public to me we don't make a lot of public statements we don't do a lot of public uh, education the trade unions that are out there are certainly not advocating to for sabotage in the face of like economic economic warfare against the against the working class so it's not something that's like i think in our brain cases to be thinking about like it's it's the same thing that you said earlier kevin like um i think before we got on before we started recording no actually i'm sorry strike all that uh you said it earlier when you were talking about you know when you came to this and you you didn't know what you were doing and it, I feel like there was a point in American history where we had the 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 Carloses and the and and the the experienced organizers who could come in and hand things off or teach other people how to do that. And that seems harder for us to find now. Yeah. And there was also like a pretty strong like you could get there were like socialist newspapers that were like printing, you know, like major papers, not, to, I mean, not to mention just like, there was like the militant and like all these, all these like leftist groups were publishing their own papers and like selling them on, you know, street corners or outside of picket lines or, or so like, like the message of the strike was always there from the side of the workers and not which is was great for me finding all this stuff online <laughs> for research. But like, and then you had like, you know, the New York Times or whatever, like publishing the, you know, press releases of the what the bosses said. But I think to have like the workers voices, like their message from their own mouths, like published on such a wide scale and so easily available to to anyone else in the city certainly helped. So something else that this book really highlights, and and I hear this come up in the IWW as well, like sort of a callback to um, our tradition of industrial organizing. Um, and, you know, I was actually just talking to a fellow worker here in the Ipsy branch who's doing some restaurant service industry, service industry organizing, and kind of asked me, what does industrial organizing look like? like like what like how like how would we achieve that and how would that work and it was an interesting conversation but i but i also feel like it's something that we don't that we don't see a lot of we don't see a lot of now but even back then like the strategy of industrial organizing we started there and then the big massive strike that we that that was that was held in new york during that time period was viewed by a lot of people as having not been successful so we had an industry 
and still had a strike that didn't have great gains. Is that a is that is is that a is that just a problem of the times and and the and the energy that the employing class was able to bring to bear against organizing efforts or something else? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of interesting um, the way kind of everyone is is heading back to work and it's like the strike has been called off. It seemed like from what I read, it wasn't like, oh man, we lost. Like we've, you know, it's over. We failed. It was like, it was like, all right, let's go back to work and organize the next strike. And it was like, there was some, some really interesting quotes from one worker. I think it was in a New York times article. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go back to work and, you know, and just sabotage it. Like I'm going to go, I can spill soup on some lady's dress. She's going to sue the house. They're going to lose money. Like, I'm just going to like, it was all about like going back to work, like with the intent of, of sabotaging the place. Yeah. There, there was always like, all right, we'll just organize the next, we'll just go back and organize the next strike. Like this one, we, you know, we got, we made, maybe made a little bit of gain. The next one we're going to do better. And I think, I think now it's like if you lose a strike, it kind of seems like that's not um, like that's not what people are saying now, especially with like from what I've, I've heard of people that have been involved in like NLRB elections. It's like if you lose, like it's over. Yeah, um, that's that's like the I and the AEIOU, you know, the inoculation preparing for like, hey, what if this doesn't go exactly how we want it? How do we keep that momentum going, you know? Yeah. And and also one of the things that I think it I can't remember if it's Elizabeth Gurley Flynn or Rose Pastor Stokes that says it's like you're going back to work, but like and this is something I didn't I didn't even realize at the time when I was writing the book, um, but like found out after it is that a lot of lit like a lot of industries were back in this day were like like you have a factory of garment workers. They are ninety-nine percent Jewish eastern european immigrants but like the the hotels and restaurants were far more diverse than most industries back then so it was like kind of a big deal and like a big victory that that like all these workers walked out despite you know their their different backgrounds and like a lot of the strike meetings were held in like four languages you know um and so i think that was like a made they they saw that as like a pretty big victory and like something that's also like this is awesome that we did and now we can move forward yeah it definitely like shows that it's like hey it's possible to do this across these lines like these are indeed like you know scalable hurdles and mm-hmm. we can figure this out although we just had a general membership meeting before this and it was long enough with one language <laughs> Yeah. So I'm looking at, and you know, there's this, this interesting, there's this interesting thing that I look at, like IWW history going back, and I see, I see a, I see like at the at the birth of our union, the involvement of people like, um, like the, the the names that we all hear, you know, Bill, Big Bill Haywood, um, but then I see, I come across names like Tresca, for example, right, that that pop up, and. And is also one of these people that the IWW calls on to go in and, and do things. Um, ben Fletcher is another one of these figures, actually, uh, where the IWW calls on and says, hey, can you go in and 
do some organizing in this space. But I feel like that's not a that's not a, that's not a thing that we do a lot of these days. We have organizer trainers, but we don't have people that if we organized a big 15,000 person strike in New York that we could send in and say, "Hey, you're you're you are an experienced person who's capable of helping to organize this strike. Um can you go in and help these people out?" Who were some of these these actors like like Tresca and Flynn um, where did they come from and and how did they get kind of tossed into this work? They're basically organizing fixers. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because the strike in 1912 is called by the its members of the International Hotel Workers Union. But then sort of as it's like fading or as, as it's like, you know, time is going on and, and it seems like it's not it's not going to win like IWW member or sympathizers in the IHWU call call on like headquarters in Chicago and are like, send people out. And so, yeah, Bill Haywood, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn are like, are speaking at these um, big like massive strike meetings. That's kind of how like it comes under, they eventually get like, grow to be like part of the strike committee. Um, but it seems like when they first go out, it's just to like, to like rally the workers um, in a strike that that seems like it's unlikely that it's going to win. Um, so then, when the strike eventually doesn't win, it kind of gets blamed on the IWW and that the AFL. Um, Jira Sullivan, the secretary treasurer, is like jumps on the opportunity to be like talk shit about the IWW and everything. Um, but yeah, they had them. Um, Hubert Harrison was another, he was uh, when the International Federation of Hotel Workers went on strike, was was one guy that was called in for a few months. Just good to have these resources. Seems like it's a good thing for us to know who we can tap to do some of this work. And I'm kind of curious who those people would be today. I don't have a list. I don't expect you to have that list. But um, there was an, there was an interesting thing when the Kellogg's workers went on strike. One of the things that came out of that, and I think that that recording is uh, an episode of ours here as well that folks want to go back and listen to, they could. Uh, but one of the very interesting things that that a, that a worker from the Kellogg strike had told us was essentially like, we haven't struck in a very long time and none of us remember how to do this. Like, yeah, 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 we, go, we leave work and we stop working and we form picket lines, but how do you keep workers engaged? How do you keep them on the picket lines? How do you get keep them from going back to work? How how do you organize strike funds? How do you organize strike support? Like, can we block entranceways? Uh, like, these were all questions that they basically had to go back and reinvent because there was nobody for them to call in to say, here's how we plan it. Here's how we do it. Let's make this happen. Yeah, like not only have the workers the like the workers at that Kellogg factory not gone on strike probably none of the the organizers or the the officials with the union have much to offer them an experience either right and so i kind of you know i kind of find that i also find that that difference this this sort of basic environment of solidarity and it and it's hard right because we're looking at this through maybe rose colored lenses i don't know but like i look through this history and i read through the work that 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 you've outlined here and and i think to myself wow like this was a group of people who had 
institutional memory. They had people they could rely on. They had serious solidarity. They had enough. They had enough sense of solidarity, mutual aid, and support for one another that that they they formed pickets that were more threatening than making chants. You know what I mean? And and that's like like and I mentioned it just a little while ago, but th- this is again like people who were physically being threatened by the employing class, by 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 the bosses and the and and the thugs that they hired. So so God, I feel like we have so much work to do sometimes when I look back at histories like this, and then I look at what we have now, and I and I think to myself, in a city like Ann Arbor, which is nowhere near the size of New York, but is but has a massive service industry, I can't even imagine how we get to the point of having those workers walk off the job and shutting the industry down. I mean, I I can't think about it. I can imagine it, but it's hard for me to think of the A to Z on that. Yeah, there's it's a big there's a big gap, definitely. One interesting thing was uh I was like looking back today and uh there's one scene where or there's one part where workers or strike breakers are leaving for the day and a bunch of strikers had like hidden out at the like at the employee exit and when they left they like grabbed them and beat them up and that was because the hotel was like providing hiring taxis to chauffeur all the strike breakers like home after work and the and out of sympathy the taxi drivers said we're not going to do it anymore um, and uh, the result is that these, you know, scabs got beat up by, by strikers. I mean, it's not, not the same thing, but during the Stardust, at a Stardust, during the Stardust campaign here in New York, um, pick, pickets would like go on super early in the morning when the, when like the deliveries of, um, of like produce are showing up, like, uh, you know, the meat, the produce, the eggs all the stuff that they need to, to cook. And those, I mean, despite maybe not having the most militant unions, those drivers don't, won't cross a picket line. I mean, maybe some will, but in that case they wouldn't. And that, that's something that could, that like, you know, really piss off a manager is now we don't have food to serve. Um, Maybe we should, you know, listen to our workers who are going to cost us a lot of money if if we don't yeah that's also actually a really interesting piece so there was a there's a part of the book that talks about the rise of the international federation of workers uh and and one of the things that they talk about when you kind of first introduce the international federation of workers was this was this debate about the permanent gains of like contracts versus temporary victors uh, temporary victories um but still having like a deep suspicion of contracts and and like i see that very debate happening even in like today and so for like and, and the reason like the story you just shared really makes me think about it is there are some unions like the Teamsters, for example, I can think of maybe it's every Teamster shop. Maybe it's just uh, maybe it's just some of the ones that I know. But a lot of them have clauses in their contracts that basically say you like we will not be forced to cross a picket line. Right. 
But not everybody has that line in their contract. And a lot of unions have given up, a lot of like business unions have given up the right to strike. They've given up the right to refuse service if it crosses a picket line. Like we've picked these little pieces of solidarity between unions out of some of these contracts. And 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 so I understand where that debate comes from, but I I am also in 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 like my present my present situation today often thinking about temporary gains versus permanent gains. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, gosh, we haven't changed a whole lot in the last hundred years. We're still debating the basic philosophy of organizing. But also, you know, it's it's kind of heartening to see that we have been here before and we have dealt with these troubles in the past and they didn't necessarily hold us back. We were still able to do some pretty serious work. The, the International Federation of Workers um, did a lot of serious organizing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as far as like contract versus, you know, versus uh, not contract or like you can have a contract, but you need uh, like power on the shop floor to back it up. If you have a contract that says you don't have to cross a picket line or you you shouldn't cross a picket line. Um, but, you know, the boss calls your calls your the boss of stardust calls your boss and says you know you're fucking me over like this dude needs to cross the picket line and your boss and like your boss could tell you yeah you have to cross that picket line and and if you don't you're fired and then you know i mean you could file a grievance take six months to get your job back or something yeah but i think this is also I don't want to talk too much shit, <laughs> but I went to this like, like Starbucks workers, like kind of intro to organizing little panel a few weeks ago. I mean, it was like a very introductory thing. So, I mean, I'm hoping in, in future ones, they'll like the details will come, more details will be shared, but it was kind of like, Hey, everyone here, like you want a union in your workplace. Like if you have a union, you get more money and you get better benefits. So what you should do is like talk to your coworkers, see how many want to join a union. Yeah. Like contact, email a union, Google like unions, find the one that's right for you, email them. And then like, if you have this many that said, yeah, we want a union, you can file for an election and get a union. My experience or like my yeah, like my experience with the labor movement has been a little different than that. And I think, I mean, Starbucks workers are doing great things and ha get having a lot of success. I think like something like that, if that's all you're doing is getting a contract and then, you know, your, your rep from SEIU or wherever is like going to the table. And, and it just seems like without, without like, shop floor militancy to back it up that, what do you got yeah that's it's it could be i mean i hope to see that but i could see also like all these young starbucks workers like getting joining a union getting a contract not seeing any benefit hating paying, it paying dues and we see the same thing that happened you know the same thing we see happen with ufcw in a lot of places yeah I mean, I mean, I think it's okay to do a little bit of shit talking. I mean, I think 
I think the modern labor movement has a lot to answer for. And and like I look in your book and I see stories of solidarity. I see stories of people having conversations, of people, of people knowing each other, of you know, showing up to watch the back of their friend or or someone that they work with. Like it wasn't just ideologically we're going to war because we demand better wages, right? There's a there's a lot of humanity in this story that isn't just, hey, go ask your buddy if he would sign a union card. I'm sorry, but that's lazy fucking organizing. And it makes me really goddamn mad. It, like, like Starbucks Workers United, yeah, they're doing some great things. But what's happening? Starbucks is steamrolling workers across the country. People are losing their, some people are losing their jobs, not all of them. I don't have the numbers, so I don't want to over-exaggerate it. But I know that here locally, some of the stores that we have been working with have not seen significant gains, and Starbucks has not even really negotiated in a super serious way with these people. And I and I and I looked at them and I said, Well, what are your workers doing? Like, like if you're negotiating your contract, who's pounding on the walls and tearing tearing down the machines? Who is who is putting pennies in the gears to prevent the to prevent the machine from booting up? I mean not that we would advocate for sabotage because that could be illegal, but seriously, I, if you don't have militant militant shop floor organizing, if you don't know your fellow workers, if you don't have a relationship with them, if all you have is a bureaucracy that negotiates a contract, like, I don't know what you think you're going to get out of it. But but what I think you're going to get out of it is a whole hell of a lot of nothing. And, and that's a problem. Um, I don't have all the solutions for it, but I know the solution isn't ask your fellow workers if they'll sign a union card. Like, I think the first question is, do you have a relationship with your fellow workers? Do you know these people? Um, how well do you know them? Like, let's talk about building serious relationships here. I'm going to steer off of the rant I'm already on and I'm going to try and route my way off of it. But it, yeah, like, it's like a problem. What are, what are their issues? What what do they want to see changed? Not, you know, do they want a union? That's right. There are workers in the IWW who I will disagree with philosophically, and they will disagree with me philosophically. But there is one thing that I think most wobblies hold in common, and that is if you don't have worker power, then you don't have anything. Um, and worker power isn't a list of people who are members of the union or signed authorization cards. Worker power is the number of people who will show up to set, not set fire because we are not arsonists. It is the list of people who will show up to surround the restaurant or the store or the factory and prevent deliveries and shut down the commerce and make the owners of those things feel the pain of screwing workers over. And we do that when we know each other. And and that is something that I see is lacking. And that when I read this book, like that's the romanticism of 1920s organizing I want back. I don't want to go back to getting beat up by Pinkertons, but I do want to go back to when we had real worker power because when when we had had power people showed up and exercised power uh, i love when derek goes on a rant and you can hear the little <laughs> lawyer in his head He'd be like i think we should burn it all well maybe not burn it all down uh, my client here would like to retract that last statement that's right that's right
So anyway, I I I feel it. And you know, there's this there's this quote that you have here um that I that I that I really love. And there's a lot of good quotes in this book. Um and but one of them is by SB Colby. I don't know what SB stands for. Does is there a, is there a name or are they just known as SB Colby? I don't know. This was like one like just op-ed piece I think in the New York Times, probably from some rich guy that was mad that, you know, his martini wasn't coming out because the hotel was on strike or something. Yeah, and so this quote is like, I have become firmly convinced that the next great upheaval which the world will have to face will be the struggle for supremacy between the waiting classes and those waited on. And I find that like I find that quote super interesting because like America's service economy has just expanded or like like since this came out, since we had strikes in New York in 1912 and on. The service economy in this country has only expanded. The number of people doing service jobs is high. The number of people going to like like four year institutions and then graduating and then, and then getting a job as a restaurant worker like those are those these are things that are happening. And I feel like there is still a piece of like the, what the next great upheaval looks like, um, in that there are still people who expect to be waited on, and the service industry, despite how big it is and how many people work in it, are just treated like garbage. Like they they may not be dehumanized, they may not all be given numbers that they're given and then fined if they looked cold on the job, um, but there are a lot of people. People in these industries that are barely surviving, that are never going to be able to retire, that cannot build reliable streams of income, pay for houses, are drowning under high rent. And I mean, at some point, something's got to give in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And like, this is also the the group of workers that were deemed essential a few years ago. A few years ago. I don't know if this was... I don't know if this was everywhere, but but it's like 7 p.m. People would sit on their fire escapes and like cheer for the essential workers leaving work, which I worked. I worked all through the I don't work uh, like front of house at all. But so I don't have that many much experience um, or like face to face with customers. But but I was working through the through the lockdown and everything and, and just the clapping like I, I'm close enough. <laughs> It's a small enough place where I can, where I can hear the the conversation between the you know the barista and the customer, and so to like hear the clapping, and then now hear like how they're treating the front of house workers is like just absurd. <laughs> People are just mad at the stupidest things, and it yeah. it definitely like complicates uh, organizing because it's like it's they're kind of like a second boss to if you're a front of house worker you have to deal with with someone yelling at you uh you know your boss is complaining that about this or that and then you know the customer complaining about the, the price of like a ham and cheese croissant it's always funny like the the kind of responses people have over when they have to explain things that they have no control over um you know, like the price of a ham and cheese croissant. But then it's also, I don't know, it's it's kind of like like these these workers, a lot of their issues are around dealing with having to deal with like shitty customers 
And it's something I've been thinking about and I don't really have a good answer to is like, how do you, how do you frame that? Or like how, how can organizing like provide a solution to that when they're not really like, you can't really make demands that the customer is like not yell at them. I don't really have a good answer for that. (laughs) I've worked with the public before and I've always advocated for a law that says you can slap at least two people a month. (laughs) Because I think that would make people shape up real fast. (laughs) Um, What's funny about that quote is not much has changed because I remember seeing the clip. I think it was like on Jon Stewart's new show or something uh, where he was having dinner with Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos was describing the future where like everybody's job would just be like a billionaire wants cheese and somebody would come and get them cheese and that would be their job. And like (laughs) and Jon Stewart being like that's not a they're not gonna like that (laughs) so it's funny how like they you know the rich still think like that like yeah i'm to be waited on and the whole economy should be based around people waiting on me (laughs) i want cheese i i just hope that there's an actual quote somewhere of bezos just like yes but i i i would love an economy where i could ask for cheese and it wouldn't even be a machine one of my machines one of my many servants would bring me a slice (laughs) sounds like a nightmare (laughs) it does sound like a total nightmare there's a lot we could talk about there's a lot we could talk about in this book um i mean i i really appreciate people who go through and put forth the effort of documenting it. I'm sure everybody who reads, uh, we have fed you all a thousand years. Kevin Bruce, um, New York City food worker organizing 1912 to 1937, right? I think I think folks who read this will get their own pieces out of it. It's a great piece of history. It's history I wasn't even aware of. I mean, I look around at, I said it earlier and I'll say it again. Like I look around restaurant organizing where I am, and there's nobody organizing in this industry. The people who want to organize in this industry, uh, the IPCIWW gets a lot of outreach from people, and I'm happy to take them on. But in terms of larger, in terms of other unions who do this, Unite Here, maybe um, there, there, there's always going to be a calculus of how many people, how much in dues can we get out of it, what what kind of organizer can we dedicate to that space, and and I think that this book isn't a perfect analog for the modern world, but it does give us a lot of history that really reminds me at least why we as wobblies go out and organize. And when we talk about organize, we're not talking about dropping authorization cards. We're talking about getting to know people. Now I might say eventually you can drop authorization cards. That's where myself and other wobblies may disagree. Um, But regardless I think that the basics have to be there. And this this book, that's one of the big things I took from this is just people getting together, having each other's backs, provides workers like solidarity is our greatest weapon, right? And this book is, I think, point is is proof positive of that. So I really appreciated a lot of the effort you put into this. Thank you. This is also stuff I didn't, I had no idea about too, um, going into the project, but it's like, it wouldn't have been a book if I didn't think it was, worth writing and and i didn't write like people will see people that read it will see that it's not like there's not a lot of me saying this strike failed because union leadership did this or this happened there's just not a lot of like my opinion in it which kind of was intentional so that because like reading i was reading back a little bit on stuff today to have some notes handy but 
I think a restaurant worker could read this book and easily come to their own conclusions. I mean, and different conclusions that I would have come to or like been like, oh shit, like that happens to me or like get their own inspirations. And I, I, I hope they do. A lot of, I've gotten, you know, people reached out to me or like people have bought the book that are organizing their workplace here in New York or that like want to organize their workplace. And I think that's like the coolest thing ever. And I hope that it, <laughs> I hope that it inspires them or they can like get something out of it. Same. I'm excited to take a peek at this book because I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, and uh, I, I'm always interested in um, organizing the deemed unorganizable like restaurant workers everybody deserves that union um when it comes around to it uh, kevin i think we're gonna have you back and we're gonna talk about uh some of the work you've been doing uh just, just that you've been doing in the modern world outside of writing books is that right yeah i am a brand workers member here in new york city and have been you know about as basically as long as i've been a wobbly and which is not much longer which is about as long as I've been a, a food worker. So that's great. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Also, you know, big ups on being a baker because Derek and I tried to make donuts for a little bit and it didn't go well. So not well at all. It was not, real bad. So, you know, good job. You're better than us already. Yeah. Not only am I an essential worker, but but everyone knows how hard it is to make sourdough post. <laughs> that's true. Actually. Yeah, that's that. That's absolutely true. Yep. <laughs> So you could right. be like, remember trying to make that? Well, pay me more. That's, <laughs> that's the argument. That's what we should be saying. That's Those are the posters. What are you remember do? when you made this in the pandemic? I love that. You're going to make it yourself? Mm. All, right. All right, Kevin. Well, good to, good to meet you. And I look forward to talking to you again. Same to you. And if people want to order the book, they can go to, uh, I think it's Dead Ramones. Let me type this in and see it. DeadRamones.BigCartel.com. D-E-A-D-R-A-M-O-N-E-S dot bigcartel.com. I think it's also on the IWW store. Oh, yeah, it is. I don't know how many. I have 200 copies. I don't know how many. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully it sells better than the records I used to put out when I ran a record label, which are all in my basement still. Um, All right. Thanks so much for being on. Well, thanks for having me. And that's the show, folks. It was recorded and edited by me, fellow worker Jason. The intro and outro song are also by me, fellow worker Jason. If you'd like to join the IWW and be part of the One Big Union, go to iww.org join. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, you can always email us at ypsilanti at iww.org. And until next time, an injury to one is an injury to all. <laughs>